I would like you to start telling me a little about yourself, how you found yourself in this position, um, and then we'll kind of talk a little bit about your family and like the community that you've built um, with this nonprofit. Okay. Well, um, I've been in the field for uh, quite some time. I went to school in England and um, I started working at the National Autistic Society there when I was, I think, 16. Um, and so it became my love and my passion from that moment. So I've been in the field working in group homes, creating new programs across countries and different states. And um, and in South Carolina, um, I really started at a government agency that was working with people with disabilities here. And um, I've worked for the school district. I created a nonprofit before SOS Care. Um, and we started working in the community with people that had um, the diagnosis of autism. And then um, probably about 12 years ago, SOS Care, which was back then known as SOS Healthcare, um, I served on the board and the person that was running it, Dr. Bill Davis, who was the founder, was about to retire and said, I really need you to take my position. And our focus is going to be autism. And, and so that's sort of how I ended up in this space. I mean, it was um, just timing of things. So as you stepped into this leadership position, was that when it expanded um, further out to include more services than just healthcare? Um, well, the leadership position really expanded because I kept growing programs in the nonprofit. And so um, every year I do a sort of study and evaluation of the community needs and um, and then re-evaluate re the programs really of what we're already providing and where the gaps are. And our nonprofit has grown from, you know, when I first took this sort of seat, I guess, uh, from serving 10 children in an ABA program uh, to serving about 1,500 families every day in a dozen programs. Um, so, you know, my, my growth, my personal growth really came with having to build a business as we were creating the programs all at the same time. So describe that to me, because yeah, I know my face got really curious for a second. Um, when you were building, what were kind of the, some of the steps that stood out to you, either professionally or personally, while you were building this nonprofit and this business? Like, how, for someone that might be interested in listening to our conversation, how would they, that be integrated into, you know, the human services field? What's that look like? Yeah. Well, and I think for me, because I'm a visionary and I've, been in the field a very long time so I knew where I wanted to go um, and I'm a program creator so I am sort of that person that brain so I can see a program that needs to happen and I know how to make it happen um, and then the business part of what was happening behind the scenes I had to find the right people to fill those seats obviously to make the business sustainable and so um, so we've just been developing that over a period of time um, to the point now where we have, you know, 60 staff members and um, 
I have an amazing leadership team that even now we're still drilling down on more training and how do we be more sustainable and how do we continue to expand? And so building the leadership piece of what we need to do in a nonprofit is not always something people think about in the nonprofit world because a lot of people think of nonprofit as, you know, maybe a little more laid back, sort of not so serious about what they're doing, but we're very serious about what we're doing. You know, we we want to be leaders in the field and, to make sure we're able to apply for any kind of funding and have events and um, make sure we're following the governance and the IRS requirements and, you know, making sure we also have people in roles that best suit their skill set and um, so that we can sustain all of the programs as we continue to grow the organization. The word sustainability is so um, fleeting sometimes in the nonprofit just development uh, lingo or conversations in general. Um, and I don't think it's in, like intentionally taught to, for that stereotype uh, that nonprofits, you know, they're loosey goosey about the way they do leadership and, and functionality and purpose. Um, I know that's definitely not true, but was there a point in time where you felt that okay, you woke up or there was a few months that it kind of revealed to you, like, I think we're sustainable. And, mm-hmm. you know, talk about that. If, if there is one, if there's not, there's not. <laughs> yes. I mean, I think when you get to the point when you can diversify your funding sources, um, that helps you to become sustainable. So we are able to bill for some services Um, like ABA therapy uh, through Medicaid and other insurance companies. And so that becomes a pretty significant funding stream for a big program. Um, And then, you know, when you start to be able to show that you are financially sound and other people can review your audits um, and see that you're financially sound, they're more likely to give you um, opportunities for grant funding. And so then you have another diversified income. Um, And then donors, you know, look at what you're doing in your 990s and tax returns and see, are you sustainable and where are you getting your money from and are more likely to donate to you when they see you have other sustainable income as well. So it's sort of looking at those different ways to bring funding in to continue your um, further your mission. So I want to shift gears a tiny bit and talk about um, as your uh, SOS care was expanding and becoming more involved with the community, um, the surrounding community, and then the community of those that you serve. How was the the area that you that the uh, nonprofit sits in, right, and exists in and creates a world in? How did the surrounding community? Um, kind of take that growth. Were they welcoming and embracing? Did you find there are a lot of people? who wanted to help and get to know uh, the nonprofit and those that they serve? Or was there any kind of tension or maybe a discontent or the opposite spectrum of good in that regard to, to how your expansion happened into the community? Well, I think um, the community's actually been very welcoming of us. Um, we spent um, a lot of time doing outreach and 
being present at events in town for all kinds of different things that were happening and sharing information with the community and talking um, to groups like the Rotary Clubs and those kinds of social clubs that are community, um, you know, groups that are already doing work. And so, you know, just finding those audiences where you can go and share information and bring people with disabilities with us that maybe they weren't thinking about disability in the way we're presenting it sometimes because people have a mindset, right? That they already think when you might say the word disability and they don't have experience. So breaking down some of those barriers, um, I think was really important into being more accepted. Thinking more about the kind of stereotypical thoughts people might carry or have, whether they're conscious about them or not, about people who have disabilities. Um, you've been doing this for, you know, a substantial amount of time. And do you, do you think, do you think you can say with any kind of confidence that in that time you have seen uh, a greater acceptance, a more welcoming heart, um, a genuine curiosity for those who are uh, able-bodied to get to understand and love and accept and, and, create an integrated community with those who are considered disabled. You see more of that in the time that you've worked? I definitely do. Um, yes, I definitely do. And businesses then are accepting of, you know, hiring people that are talented um, with disabilities to work in their business locally. And that's a, been quite a major breakthrough, I think, of the last few years um, that they have, businesses actually come to us seeking out people with disabilities to help diversify their workforce. And so, yeah. um, so that tells us a lot about how times have changed. Um, and then I think in some of the other sort of arenas where I see differences because things like having a golf tournament where we're doing a fundraiser, we would bring people with disabilities to help us present information or make announcements and things like that. And so people that may not normally be touched by someone with a disability, um, and it's completely sort of, they're just there for the golf maybe and help support a charity, but don't know anything about it. They're going to have some exposure to real people with disabilities while they're there. And, and that again breaks down sort of some of those barriers where people might have a mindset that changes because now they've met someone that didn't fit that bias they may have had in their mind. Yeah, um, I really love what you're describing is that that creating an environment for that interaction to occur that is, you know, uh, humilious and and actually just genuine. So there isn't this. Uh, there isn't room or space for a, a pre-thought, you know, to yes. come up and, and, and interact um, and create, you know, an illusion or a, a precondition. The whole point is to make sure that you are not forced to change your mind or forced to confront something head on right there in your, you know, immediate conscious attention, but to just give the space for that interaction to occur naturally. Uh, and I think that's why the community aspect and just the amazing amounts of things that you have done in your work and time. Um, I looked at the history on the website and it was just one thing after another. And what was so tremendous to see is how varied all of the events 
um, but in programs and just over the course of the history of the nonprofit, how that has grown exponentially as well, right? I think why more for me, there's the part that really I, I want to see nonprofits succeed. And so when we uh, come across one that does, I'm just like, okay, what's the blueprint? But the thing is, is it's different for everyone, right? So um, how do you how do you see the future? Do you just keep seeing the nonprofit expanding? And then tell me a little bit more about how the those that you serve uh, bring their skills and your, their uniqueness to the services that you provide. Mm-hmm. Yes, I do see us continually um, expanding based on how you know, society changes and new things come up that we hadn't addressed before. I mean, even think of just doing COVID, like a completely different thing happened in our lives. And we have to think of other ways to be able to um, work with people, support people, um, have them engaged. And so I think some of the things we haven't thought of because they just hadn't happened yet. Other things, we have a 10 year plan. We have a big vision. And, um, you know, that includes of course the independent living programs and community and where we fit and, and how do we keep building that? Because it's such a huge need for adults, um, across the country. I would love to touch on that real quick. And that is, um, you know, identifying that the, there was the, the way that kids with disabilities were treated in elementary school, middle school, and high school, and then how we carried those stereotypes of stu- you know, able-bodied students uh, to whatever degree. Um, and then after that, like that, syst- there's a sit-up system, not saying it, it works or that it's an inclusive one, but the education system has a, you know, a care track, that's a really terrible way of putting it, but correct me in my terminology, um, on how kids with disabilities are, are tracked and get through, you know, their education. And as adults, you know, all of us are just thrown out to kind of figure it out. And if not, there's other, you know, trials and tribulations that I'll never experience and will never experience as able-bodied people. How does that why does that so often get overlooked or is it just stops being part of the conversation? Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, at school, it's, um, I think it's so different because we have these very separate tracks of education and you start, you have people that have, um, you know, a, a cognitive IQ of this much. And so they're on this track and then you have people with the cognitive IQ and ability that's 70 or below, and they're going to be in a different track on in, in, in a special ed class a lot of times, which might be self-contained. And I don't know, sometimes I look at the differences in these people that have graduated or left school when they're 18 or 21. And a lot of the people that went to the special ed type programs, um, had a lot of life skills kind of training and things like that, but haven't really been out in the world enough to be able to figure out what they want to do as far as employment and that kind of thing. So they really, the transition time at school leaves a lot to be desired. Um, And then for for the youngsters that actually did graduate with a regular diploma, 
they didn't get any time to work on how do I interact in the world? Where's my training for that? They were so busy, you know, getting Carnegie units to graduate that they weren't getting time in sort of life skills programs and social skills programs and things like that, which are actually their biggest deficits for most of them. So when they leave school, we actually end up with them all coming back to the same place, which is a place where I still don't really belong in the world by myself without supports, or I didn't get enough training and supports. And so all of them come back, whether they graduated with a regular diploma or an attendance certificate, and they're all back in our groups and we start over. And then we fill in all the gaps of the pieces they didn't actually learn while they were in school. What a beautiful process. There's so many things that are mirrored, at least in our culture, that is this your throne, no matter who you are, <laughs> into having the maybe the 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 credits to get through, but not the, you know, life skills. Or maybe you got all the life skills, but you just didn't attain, you know, the best inspiration from your education. Yeah. Um and so that's a shared experience that is not separated by, you know disability or not right in our culture specifically i understand it does um but to find those those bridges that we just kind of don't even think exist that help us understand someone better again it's an experience mm -hmm. that occurs in an environment uh between you know like a natural coming to an understanding between two people and to to explain that to somebody Yes. Um, a lot harder. So yes. I imagine that there's a lot of richness that I won't say lacks when you do advocacy work or policy work, um, but that just seems more holistic and more genuine when you can do interactions with communities um, compared to trying to get a law passed or trying to explain something to a body or, or an entity. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about that experience? Yes. I mean, you know, as a mom as well of two, um, you know, young men with autism, I mean, the advocacy piece of what I've had to do for my entire life with them has been um, things I never thought I would have to do. I mean, having to learn how to stand up and speak in front of um politicians and school board members and be, you know, uh, smart about what you were going to say and try not to be emotional when you really were emotional because it's your children and you're fighting for everything you can to get them programs or services and the things that they needed. So I think for you'll see that with a lot of families is that they've learned to become um, their own attorneys and medical advocates and you know, things that they never knew they would have to learn, totally outside of most people's realm of sort of knowledge and experience. But we know that when there are so many issues in the community that need attention, we have to advocate very clearly and loudly for our population because most of our people may not have a voice to be able to even advocate for themselves. So we try to teach them how to do that for the ones that are able. But there are some, quite a few, that are nonverbal that might not be able to advocate for themselves. And so families pick up that piece too, and we do as advocates in our organization. Um, 
we had some pretty interesting experiences last year with a group of uh, people that are in our adult program and we took them to Columbia to the state house and they were advocating for um, a change and there's a min a sub minimum wage law that is on the books right now that um, affects a lot of people with disabilities being paid at a different rate um, than other people. And so we took some of our self advocates and they were able to speak in the courthouse. And um, I think when you watch the person with a disability that's able to actually stand up and, and present this information, um, it's so much more powerful than when it comes from, you know, their mom or a person that doesn't have a disability. So they did so much work last year that really helped change legislation. And, and that was just amazing to watch. I, I had lots of proud mom moments during those times. Again, to my point before, like that environment for that change is more um, organic. I like that word best, probably out of all the words I've been trying to use. This is yeah. an organic process um, that can be almost impossible to nail. Actually, in, in my just personal experience, in impeccable at getting down or getting across an experience um, or to, you know, uh, kind of demand a kindness, like a natural kindness from somebody else just by explaining to them how they should or should not be interacting with another person or a person with disabilities or as an able person and as an advocate. Um, and that's what's refreshing as well to have just hear that kind of theme flow throughout your conversation about your leadership and, um, and SOS care. We talked, when we last talked, one of the last things we spoke about was, um, a lot of transitioning into living um, some of the people that you work with living on their own, right? And that you've seen that process. Can you talk a little bit more about their experience? Um, well, I think when we started talking about um, how we were serving and supporting adults in our nonprofit, we spent um, so much time on employment and learning life skills and being out in the community and joining recreation groups. And, and then at the end of the day, everybody, you know, was still going home to their parents' house. And um, it just became a natural time for us, for us to have this conversation, which is, what are you going to do when your parents don't have a house or your parents are not here anymore? Like, have you gone about those things and have you talked about those things with your family? And so we started having a lot of discussion about that. What, and no one's really talked about this because it's a very hard thing to talk about. Oh, my mom won't be here one day or, Oh, well, I'm just going to live with my sister or my brother, which sounds like a good idea in this moment maybe, but when they get married and have their own family, maybe they might not want you to come and live in their house with them. And so we started talking about what that looks like. And we, you know, we brought visuals and we're like, these are condos and these are houses in the community. And this is a place in the a little town. And this is a place in the country. And if we could all sort of pick places that we would want to live and spend time with people that 
we felt safe with what does that look like? And so they really came up with the idea that they would like to live in a community together where they felt safe and um, they could afford. And so that really became the beginning of the dream for um, and the planning for Oak Tree Farm. And so then I got some professionals together around the table that had experience as builders and real estate people and land developers and engineers. And we really started talking about, is this something we can really do? And of course, my answer is always yes, because we can do anything. So we just started making a plan. And, you know, now we have the first two houses built at Oak Tree Farm and we have 10 acres and uh, people are living there and they've been living there for a year. And it has been, um, it's hard to describe for me the progress that I've seen with the five men that are living there. because it's so many things that people have never done before. I had these experiences that it's hard to sort of put it all in the words, but not having a staff person that lived there with them all the time was probably the best thing we could have decided. And um, having them make decisions on their own and as a team or with their roommates uh, help them grow exponentially and gain confidence. Every time they made a decision, gained more confidence and gained more confidence. And um, they're just amazing people that um, did this on their own. We gave them a platform and they they just grew into people that are independent. And um we didn't know it was going to be that great, but it's been more than I could ever say. And they're so happy. So now we're getting ready to start the next phase of the building where we move a lot of people at one time. So we actually have 75 people that will move out to Oak Tree Farm this year, um, which is massive. And um, I'm sure we'll come with lots of interesting challenges. Um, but we've created um, some new supports that we saw for things that may be more helpful with a mental health team that's ready to help with transition for families as well, because the transition isn't just challenging for the person with a disability. The challenge of the transition for the family is huge because they've had this grown person in their house for their whole life and they've made decisions for them for most things that they do every day. And so to not be part of that every day for them is a, is a very hard change as well. I think my mom probably needed a mental health team when I left the nest because that was the first and the last, but her yes. solution was getting five or six dogs. <laughs> not a way I would suggest in supporting a whole community. Unless everyone wanted a dog, then I actually think that's a great idea. Everyone gets a dog in the community. Um, but tell me, this project, how long has it taken to get this far? Um, well, it's been um, a dream in my head for many, many years. And then for to get it from an idea to sort of on paper, to buy in the land, to finding funding, uh, to moving people and all of that. We're probably, uh, I think we're in year five. Of actual That's beautiful. Work. 
Yeah. Yeah. At any point in that, in the year so far and the years to come, I'm sure, how did you um, face though, and address those feelings of like, mm, if they did happen? Um, so I am assuming, but any kind of feelings of self-doubt or like nervousness, the plan was going to go awry. I know you're an idealist and I love and admire that about you. Um, but at any point, did it just seem like you, like you were tempted to take a step back or change directions? Um, or were you just pretty, pretty certain you had the same vision or power to at least adjust your vision throughout the five years so far? It's been interesting because it's not my forte. I am not a developer, but I have become a developer. And I have had many, many moments of like, oh, wow, this is massive. I cannot really think about it too much because it's so big and it's so risky and it's so many things. And um, so I would have those moments. And then we had difficult times with some grant funding and some things we didn't understand in applications and things we didn't get money for because we didn't have all of the right you know, pieces in a grant and things like that. So it's been a massive learning curve. Um, I would say that I knew whatever happened, I was never going to give it up. I mean, it was never, there were many, many times where people were like, wow, this is, <laughs> this is so big. How are you doing this? I was like, I don't know, but we will. And the people come and they help and we get to the next hurdle and we keep going. And because I have a commitment to the people that I support, I've given them a dream and I have to make it happen. Um, I'm committed to do that no matter what. So yeah, I did have lots of doubt. There were lots of very stressful days and nights and, um, but luckily I have a great team of people that worked with me and we got to each piece and our commitment is steadfast. We're doing it. So whenever that takes. Going back to your your very beginnings, your very very beginnings, when you you know uh, were were working with the disability population, and you never you would have never even guessed that in the first place. Those who are you know either new to the human services field or still searching for their population, quote unquote. Um, what kind of advice do you give them? Is it like a follow your heart kind of advice or is there, is there something defining the magic in the people that you really want to serve? Mm -hmm. And I think, um, <clears throat> I think for a lot of people, it is experience. It's, it's having an experience that you never had before. So I, I think it's really important to put yourself in places where you're uncomfortable that you don't know much about because you don't know the thing that you're looking for sometimes. I didn't know the thing I was looking for. I was put into that place. Um, my professor said, you have to go do this internship. Not what I was expecting or wanted to do at all. But if he hadn't put me in that space, I would never have known this was actually my lifelong work about to happen. And so I think it's important for people with disabilities, people without disabilities, I mean, to have experiences where they go to different places, businesses, things that they don't know anything about, join a board of something you don't know anything about, learn new things. Because along that journey, you will find something that you didn't even know existed and it will 
make your heart sing. And that's what we hope that, you know, all of our work will be for us. You, you hope that for everyone, that for the amount of time they spend working every day, it's something that makes their heart sing. Oh, and cut scene, man. <laughs> that was incredible. Oh, just all of that was a flow of amazing energy that plenty of us want to hear um, as we come into trying to find ourselves and serving others. Thank you so much, Sarah, for sharing. I'm excited to have you back on and expand the conversation, yeah. um, especially your effect in the community at your, you and what you do and, and those you work with your team, right. Um, to proof that, you know, we can't keep living under this idea that we got to do it all by ourselves and that, you know, hyper, hyper individualism is going to save us. And you're just a, a pearl and an oyster of an example of what that looks like to overcome that, you know, that stipulation. Nice. Good work for it. <laughs> all right. Thank y'all for joining this episode and we will see you next time. Thank you so much. You can find previous talks on our YouTube page. Just search NOHS organization and click subscribe. All of our social media handles can be found in the description box below. And of course, there is a ton more to learn and do on our website, nationalhumanservices.org.